Heading down the south to the land of the pines I'm strumming my way into North Carolina Staring up the road, I pray to God I see headlights I made it down the coast in 17 hours Picking me bouquet dogwood flowers And I'm hoping for Raleigh I can see my baby tonight Come on! Why were you were nervous? Everyone gets nervous at that. That was that was actually a beaut. No, that was actually really good, Ken. Yeah, thank you. Kenny G on the sax here. Yeah. I'm impressed. Uh, we've got an interesting show today. So actually, I just want to let everybody know this is my 250th show, which is actually a big number. But we're actually going to talk about something small on today's show: tiny homes, right? So I've got Bianca to, I guess, my right, and I've got Ken to my left. And uh, you guys want to introduce yourselves? Just a, a little brief about what's going on. Sure. Yeah. My name's uh, Ken Beacondam, and uh, I own King Homes Inc. and LegalSecondSuites.com. And yeah, our our primary focus is on helping people create secondary dwelling units in their homes. And whether it's a little basement apartment or upwards of a twenty thirty unit building conversion. So. We do a, l- a little bit of everything. So I got a lot of questions for you, Ken. That's what's going to happen on today's show. And then Bianca. Thank you. Hi, I'm Bianca Metz. I'm a co-producer of the Tiny Home Show and also a tiny house consultant with my company, The Giving Tree. I essentially help people downsize into tiny homes properly and find them locations to put their home and live their forever life. You gave me a little tour of your place right there, which we'll talk in depth about which is great but i just want to let everybody know about we're recording on the sunday i guess before the weekend before the show that's coming up so the tiny home show which is happening in ancaster fairgrounds august 4th to 7th municipal day thursday 12 you're gonna have 12 models there 12 plus models wow and 35 different exhibitors yes yeah around 45 including the it's gonna be a good show it's gonna be a great show. it's the first show it's the very first show. Okay, and then we'll get into that whole world. But so, what other handles did I? Okay, so you have the Giving Tree and Tiny Home Show is yours, Bianca, right? Yes. And so that's the GivingTreeFamily.com. So you can, everyone can check that out. You're consulting, you're helping people get into this space. Mm-hmm. And then there's also tinyhome.show. Is that right? Yes. And then on social, it's at thegivingtree.tinyhome. Yes. That's correct. And then Ken, yours is LegalSecondSuites.com. Yes. I love what you're doing, man. That actually makes a lot of sense. And I wish more trades or more contractors would get into it because I think the world needs it, <laughs> to be very honest. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so, and then your email is Ken, uh, and it's uh, Beacondam, which is B E K E N D A M at gmail.com. And then your social is basically your name, Ken Beacondam, right through all Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'm the only Ken Beacondam in existence, as far as I know. So it makes my life very easy from my uh, marketing perspective. Wow. Very humble. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so where do we want to begin, guys? Because I'm excited about this. This has always been a passion of mine. I'm always impressed with what people can do. You show me your place beyond 240 square feet. And the first thing I said to you, as a lot of people do, it doesn't feel like 240 square feet. We know what 240 square feet is. A single car garage is basically what it is. And you got condos being built that are around that number and they don't feel that way so i guess do you want to let us or let us let the listeners know how you got started in this space definitely oh my goodness so we got started about four years ago we decided to downsize sell our condo get out of dodge Uh, we really love nature we're both my husband and i are both environmentalists and it was really important to us that we started practicing what we preach my husband's an adolescent school teacher outdoor school professional so it just kind of really made sense when we started doing it we really didn't know what we were doing we had absolutely 
no idea what was going on. So like um, you're pretty much every tradesperson that gets into this business then? Pretty much, yes. <laughs> the frontline defense <laughs> is what I like to call myself. So yeah, the Giving Tree was incepted through that journey and uh, through the hiccups, through us trying to figure out permissions, policy, uh, the right house to buy and all of those different things. I've basically curated this business to be able to help other people do the same. And so the house we live in is 240 square feet and it's it's everything that we need. My husband's a large man. Ken, you're a pretty tall guy. He's he's around the same height as you and 6'3", 6'4", and in a small 240 square foot home doesn't always sound like it would feel great. But Manny, as you said, when you walked in, you said, oh my gosh, wow, this is much larger than I thought it was. And it's true, it is. And we have a, a small small child in the house as well. And there may not be a lot of room to grow, but there's certainly uh, options to buy a bigger home. So, yeah. But it's interesting that it, it's eight feet wide and 30 feet long, but the height of it is, it's, it's getting up there. It's probably about 10 or 11 feet tall. Yeah, so it's around 11. The um, builders, when the house was towed, they actually had to to let down the, the tow trailer so um, it could get under <laughs> the road permissions. Uh, and that's what you get, folks, for not purchasing a properly built home. <laughs> and then you guys bought it already completed and then parked it on a spot. But then you could also consult and talk to people about starting from scratch and building something brand new mm -hmm. in that same space. Exactly. At what point does it not become a tiny home? Because I remember I've had earlier on in my career, I had, had lots of conversations with people about tiny homes and then they started adding modulars to it. And all of a sudden it became 1, 1,500 square feet. And I'm like, this is no longer a tiny home. Where's that increment between tiny home and regular home? Yeah, that's a really great question. So tiny homes are typically deemed anywhere from 188 square feet, which as most people who are listening knows, that's the lowest OBC. Uh, 188 to around 450 square feet is a technically a tiny home. So if you think about that in square footage, you're looking at anywhere from an eight foot to a 12 to 14 foot, kind of that more so double wide situation to about 43 feet long because the gooseneck trailer is 43 feet long. And that's really the only road worthy at that point structure that you can get from point A to point B fairly easily. And so if you move up from there, 400, 500 square feet to around 700, you're looking at a small home and then 700 to 800 plus is just a kind of a regular size home. That's when you're getting into the garden suite previously the garden suite um square footage and so those are the kind of definitions you can you can look at micro home is also another term um but tiny homes is all encompassing for anything under 450. so you were mentioning and so in the hamilton ancaster area what's the minimum 160. Well, minimum for OBC anywhere is 188. Unfortunately, for the minimum for Hamilton, I believe is around nine. Ken, you might know better than me. For a principal unit? Well, the reason I was bringing it up because I built a few bunky homes, so to speak, which are our OBC that uh, to avoid a permit, and all you have to do is get an electrical permit to bring the power source to it. So you bring a tech cable to it is 108 square feet. That's our max that we're allowed to build without a permit. Mm -hmm. So the moment you want a permit, then you can go a little larger and then it's, it's determined basically on bylaw situation, whatever your lot size is to the existing dwelling, and then that will determine the size of the dwelling that you could park in the back. Exactly, yeah, and the bunkies, anything under, uh, in most places it's 108, 109, yeah. you're not then dealing with a habitable dwelling, so it's it's really kind of completely different purpose and use for sure. Got it, yeah. okay, and then, okay, so Ken, I want to get an idea of when you got first started into that second floor, the extra additions, things like that, yeah, right? Yeah, so, um, so I started my company back in 2018 and um, I had worked for another contractor. Um, I was a you know, designer, architect, uh, you know, sales rep, 
um, kind of going out there. And, but I was also investing in real estate as well on my, uh, on my own. You know, back, you know, going back, you know, four or five years ago, you know, we weren't able to do secondary dwelling units as easily as we can now, right? So the municipalities have really changed their zoning bylaws you know, under the um, permissions of the province to basically spur these, these units uh, to be created. Are the rules slightly different for each city? Because this is all based on municipality. It's, yeah. not, it's not the provincial, right? Yeah, so city by city will have their own individual zoning bylaws. Um, Who's the easiest to work with? <laughs> well, I'm just, yeah. I'm just I, like she, she. You got your hand up. I just, I want to let people know. So, but if they want to move here, then move here, kind of thing. So, I don't know how, who's easy. I know that Mississauga is difficult. I know that for a fact. Every so we work in 35 different municipalities. Oh wow! So I get a good, um, you know, wide experience of dealing with different cities. There are different processes, different individual zoning bylaws, and I would say out of all of all of the ones that we we work with, I think Brantford has the most um, easiest and relaxed zoning bylaws around adding these units. But like anything, it goes to, you know, um, how much uh, knowledge or experience you have around the particular zoning bylaws um, so that, you know, when you're starting out your project, whether it's a new purchase or you're looking at adding something into your existing yard, uh, just knowing uh, clear, you know, clearly what their requirements are makes it easy. What happens is, is people don't know all the requirements and then they start a project and then they, they keep hitting roadblocks with the city, roadblock after roadblock. So should we let everybody know that do your zoning homework first and then do your OBC homework second? Would that be the best path to go? Absolutely, yes. Yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so that's been my experience, you know, um, you know, hitting a lot of roadblocks uh, time and time again. And, and as we kind of learn the requirements, it's getting easier and easier within the different cities. But yeah, like the, the province has made it easier. The cities are making it easier. They, they are changing their zoning bylaws to you know, reduce a lot of these roadblocks that people face, So, which is good. Lots of reasons for that too. A lot of cities, they have to pivot to match the, to Bill 108, the More Homes, More Choices Act. Um, so that came down provincially in 2019. And the municipalities, they have to respond. So they have to allow secondary dwelling units in some manner. Some are choosing to allow interior, exterior attached. Some are allowing exterior detached. There are three ways to do it specifically for adding those secondary dwelling units. And again, I think more than three or four, you're looking at more of a triplex, um, multi-unit multi, multi -unit situation. However, the, the more, I guess, philosophical piece of that puzzle is that you know cities have to accommodate growth population they have to yeah. accommodate their sustainability goals they have to accommodate these different factors that really impact uh, pack their city so it does look different from every city because a rural township will look very different than say for example mississauga where where you're coming from and so the pivots look different and uh, the policies look a lot different some allow it some don't it's just very confusing so that's why it's really important to reach out to somebody who knows wasn't this always in an existence i mean i've worked on homes in toronto where they had those coach houses which were technically speaking i guess the nanny suites or in-laws uh, what it became and it basically was the size of a garage like you were either doing a single car or a double car so you were around the 200 or 400 square foot homes but i guess that just fell apart and then it just became dwellings that just became larger and larger but now we're going into a world that needs these smaller dwellings now these dwellings they're not or they are a part of the original ownership of the single the first dwelling that's on the property is that they're connected somehow is that how it is 
Yeah, so from um, like what the big shift was in the provincial policies and, 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 you know, and, and so on into the zoning bylaws was that you know, we, we always had a single detached home, right? And then you had something called a duplex, which is two homes in one. But a duplex is defined a little bit differently than a secondary dwelling unit. So for a lot of cities, a secondary dwelling unit or an additional dwelling unit is a, um, a smaller unit within the principal building or the principal home, which is a single detached home, which, which you have to kind of wrap your head around, okay, the, the how, what that looks like, right? It's always subordinate to the principal, the principal unit, right? And so whereas a duplex could be like, they could both be equally sized. Um, and so what's happened is that the city has now allowed, you know, one secondary dwelling, it could be two secondary dwelling units. They're allowing up to two? Within the principal home. Some cities, they'll, they'll limit to only having, you know, the two units in the principal building, and then that third unit has to be in a, a detached structure. Separate structure. Which, uh, which we, you know, we're, we're calling coach houses or laneway houses or, you know, putting tiny homes in people's yards. And so that's, that's been a big shift where, where, you know, the province and the municipalities are allowing up to three units in a single detached zone type of property. So who owns all these properties, though? Like, can you still be a single owner of that separate detached structure in your backyard? Or is the principal owner of that lot, they're the owner of that unit? They're the owner of that unit. They are the owner. So of the that city's unit. not allowing it. Like it's no different than if you find a lot and you can you can request a sever, where you sever the lot at that point. It's not like that. You can't. No, no the um, the cities are not allowing you to sever off that newly created detached, you know, secondary dwelling unit or, or tiny home off the. the so land. that would be more in an urban environment where you're taking existing structures and you have the backyard space. But then when you Bianca, when you're dealing with yours, you're talking about parking your homes in different areas of the city mm -hmm. and getting those approvals for that. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And then how does that, I guess, is there more red tape or paperwork on that process versus what Ken's doing? It's less red tape and more so recognizing to use a specific bylaw in a unique way. And so when we talk about everything that we just spoke to, so principal units, building a secondary dwelling unit, the rules of ownership are that the property owner owns that structure. So the person who, in, who lives in that structure is a tenant. Now, in my personal opinion, that doesn't exactly bode as a solution to affordable housing. It just increases rental supply. It is certainly a factor and it definitely increases affordable housing opportunities. But when you're talking about people entering into the housing market and really hoping to have a sense of home ownership and actually hold a mortgage and a title to a home, you have to look at it differently. And so through my business, what I've done in the last few years is create an affordable housing framework that allows for this uh, position. And so essentially what that looks like is using the garden suite bylaw and the temporary use bylaw to allow temporary secondary dwelling units. So instead of the homeowner building the secondary dwelling unit, owning that and renting it out, they can in fact, and I air quote, rent and lease the opportunity to somebody else. So that other person would be a tiny home tenant. They'd purchase a properly manufactured or built tiny home to Ontario Building Code, and we can talk about the certifications in a little bit. But th that would mean the municipality has the appropriate building code uh, policies to allow that. A lot of building departments have different opinions on what they, they want to see in their cities. And so anyway, this tiny house tenant can bring in their own tiny home and place that on somebody's property as a temporary secondary dwelling unit. And many municipalities that I'm dealing with are just using the garden suite bylaw. And the good thing about the garden suite bylaw is that it already exists in every municipality. 
and it exists as an outside permitted use as opposed to um, a permitted use, say, on residential property of permitted uses of secondary dwelling unit. You can build a deck. You can do a X, Y, and Z. In the country and rural areas, you can build a greenhouse or a kennel. You can have all of those other different things. But garden suites are unique in that you can use a garden suite in most zonings as long as the permissions, setbacks, and different things allow for it. So this is a really great opportunity because now you have home ownership meets the property owner is gaining a rental income. They could perhaps bring their children home. They can age in place. There's so many uses that that make more sense other than builder or sorry property owner to tenant, and the the kind of um, rules of ownership, the tenancy act, everything really it it aligns. And so the way this happens though, and those who are listening to the podcast might think to themselves, well, the garden suite policy doesn't make sense because historically the garden suite bylaw is meant for uh, relatives and blood family members to live in. But that piece of the policy was actually taken out a while ago because it's a human rights violation to ask who's living in a home or tell someone who can live in a dwelling. So now that that has been taken out, this actually makes sense. So every municipality I speak to and ask if we can use the garden suite bylaw in this way, many of them say, well, there's nothing to say you can't. You did your homework, eh? Like, I, She's wow. Amazing. She's amazing. <laughs> I didn't know a fraction of that. Like, that's amazing that, okay, so, and this is applicable for every municipality. Every single one. Wow. So at the show, not to, not to promo the show. No, but, but I'm going to promo the show no, on I Municipal Day. I want you to promo the show, yeah, for sure. And then that's, you're going to learn a lot more about that. But I'm actually going to share which county has adopted this policy into their bylaws, which we'll go through in September. So in September, you will be able to own your own tiny home and land lease on somebody else's property legally in Ontario. And then eventually, if you wanted to, you could take your property, your tiny home that you own and move. Exactly. And do the exact same thing in a different city if you wanted to. Because the temporary use bylaw is one to three minimum years up to a term of 20 years. So your terms of tenancy match the term of the policy. That is the tenancy agreement that you enter into. So when you guys are talking about both of these situations, and I want to ask you guys about the types of people that are getting into here, right? Because it's not the typical homeowners that we're so used to constructing for. I see a bank statement, like this huge, no different than a lottery check bank statement of these numbers that are no longer applicable to your day-to-day expenses of owning a home, owning a condo, utilities, all this other stuff. I see this bank statement basically vaporizing, just disappearing. I want to first get an understanding of the type of owners that you're working with that are requesting these spaces for you, Ken. Yeah, so I've seen a big shift in, um, you know, I would just say in the last year in light of, you know... um, The wake-up call. The wake-up call here (laughs) in, uh, you know, across Canada and especially Ontario with uh, the pricing of housing. So we've seen, um, I've seen a big shift. So we're starting to see a lot of older boomers, okay, wanting to create spaces in their home for their aging parents, yes. right? Because there's such a lack of uh, places for seniors to go, uh, you know, well-built, quality seniors residence, okay? And so we've seen, I've seen a big shift, and, and boomers wanting to create these units in their homes, nicely designed, you know, kind of open concept. First floor, um, first f- not look medicinal. Yep, everything on one level, right? <laughs> yeah. Laundry and everything on yes. one level, so it's easy for their parents to, uh, to live. And by the way, we that are all listening are going to be that person one day. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. We all are, right? Exactly, so. and I'm even having those types of conversations with my own parents, yes. you know, about, well, you know, once you guys are ready to, to move out of your home, maybe we'll build a, a unit in, in my place and you can come stay with me. You know, and that idea is, is, is wonderful. 
right? And this multi-generational living is, well, it used to be, that's how it used to be that's way back in the day. The, Europe, that's just right? the mentality. That's how yeah. it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then we got, we, then we went down this road of everybody kind of in their own houses and their own families in their own houses. But we're kind of coming back full circle to this multi-generational living. Yes, on one hand, out of necessity, right? Because we need places to live. But I think it's a beautiful picture, you know, of, of everybody kind of living in one, in one house and helping each other out and like the older parents helping the younger kids. And, and um, so that's one aspect we see is the, is the boomers wanting it for their aging parents. The other one is families who have children with disabilities. Yeah. Okay. Whether it's, uh, you know, a mobility issue, a mental issue, deaf, blind, whatever, whatever the disability may be. Same thing like the seniors, there's, there's not a lot of uh, homes that are built for the disabled, right? And so I've been helping a number of families actually try and create these units within their homes. Same thing, depending on the disability, you know, whether, whether the basement space is, is, is a suitable space or if it's the main floor space or maybe a rear addition. Um, you know, we are creating additions for these units as well. And so it's, it's definitely solving a need out there, you know, adding these units and you know, really helping these families out. And so I've seen this shift from, you know, the everyday real estate investor wanting to create a unit for, you know, added income to the everyday homeowner needing to create these units out of basically necessity and affordability. And so that's, that's where we're heading. So for know? decades, it was always the income property in the basement. And that no longer is where it stops. It could actually keep on going from there to the backyard, to the second floor, split that house, things like that, right? Yeah. Am I fair to say that the core age group is not interested in this? Like that second home buyer or the third home buyer, they're not really looking at these opportunities? Yeah, like I see, you know, from our, from our client base, you know, I, I see either it's like the young couple just starting out who actually need um, to have that additional rental income and just in, in order to you know, able to afford the property or it's the older boomer, you know, also maybe needing the rental income to get, uh, be able to afford retirement yes. or for their aging parents. Uh, it's this middle cohort that, you know, they're in their thirties to 45, let's say they're, you know, they're, they're established, you know, they have good secure jobs. They, they live in great neighborhoods. We're not really seeing that market of the population really jumping on board in, in the secondary dwelling unit space. Um, because they like their space. They like what they have, right? We were talking about that off mic just before we got started. They don't necessarily need that extra income. The social aspect of it. Yeah. So they still want to entertain. And, and But I mean, we talked about how you have a tiny home. You still have outdoor, especially in the last two and a half years of what's mm-hmm. been going on. Everybody's going outdoor. Mm-hmm. Like it's so important to be outdoor. Are you seeing the same thing, Bianca, when, when you're speaking, consulting to certain people? Is it that same you're speaking to that first time home buyer, the, the, the retirees, but that core age group, they're not really focused on this yet? Yeah, I would say it's pretty similar and for, but for different reasons where people are building secondary dwelling units for, to increase rental or to bring home a parent or a child or uh, expand in multi-generational living. The, excuse me, the core of who I'm consulting, they are people who can't enter into the housing market at all and never will in the foreseeable future whether they have the income or not. Folks who do have the income, so two really good jobs, they're, they're really set, but they just don't have $90,000, $100,000 for a down payment, um, but they could easily buy a tiny house and pay 80% of that tiny house off right away. Um, and then you have you know, a lot of 
people who are becoming empty nesters or who are understanding that their children will never be able to enter into the housing market and they want to help them, so they want to secure a tiny house for their children that their children can actually own. So it might be similar to what Ken is seeing, but it's a different sense of ownership. So the people who are, again, living in the unit, own the unit. And so uh, a lot of people are hoping to downsize and utilize this bylaw, this temporary use bylaw, to move on to, again, their parents' property. They're going to sell their $1.5 million home. They're going to buy a $250,000 mammoth of a tiny house, and it's going to be everything they need, and they're going to cash out on a million dollars. And this is super desirable for a lot of people because, again, now you can help your parents. You can move to your family farm. You can do all of these things. Yeah, the population is around the same, or the demographic, rather, is around the same, but the uses are different. People who want financial freedom and who want a little bit more of a freedom of a lifestyle rather than the comfort of their of their current living situation. So I'd love to get into the actual construction part of building these, these dwellings, right? So I guess you guys can both talk about how that all works, because I guess the first thing is creativity plays a huge part about it. Like the space itself, trying to figure out how to utilize literally, you know, 240, 250 square feet. It's very difficult to design that way. You guys want to, who wants to start first? I can absolutely start this conversation. I am obsessed with small space design in, in a crippling way, mainly because I live in 240 square feet and I know how to use each and every square foot. Do you feel like you live in 240 square feet? I don't. I feel like I live in a bigger house because what we have in there is very intentional and when actually when I go into bigger homes, I feel anxious because mm. I think to myself, oh my gosh, there's so much room here. What, what do you even need this space for? But I did live in a big home before and I grew up in a big home. I grew up in the country. So I've grown up with space, but for our family, it really works. And so when it comes to small space design, you have to really get down to the person. You can't just take someone who's living in a 1500 square foot home and, and just shrink that. It doesn't work because you won't fit your thing. So it's also a mentality. Low consumption lifestyles, people who are interested in low consumptive lifestyles will really find a lot of success in living tiny. And for our family, we have what are called capsule wardrobes. So we have about 30 to 35 items for each season. Most of them are neutral. Most of them are, you know, staple pieces. If you think about your wardrobe and I'm I'm sitting with two men, so perhaps it's a different conversation. <laughs> However, um, you probably wear the same three pairs of pants, maybe four or five shirts, same sweater, same 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 things. Seasonally but you have speaking, yes. Yep, seasonally that sounds speaking. about right. You're right. So thank yeah, you for yeah, very much, <laughs> you yes. confirmation. Um, so when you think about that, women are pretty similar, unless you have a working professional who loves to doll it up every single day. They might need um, a tiny house for their closet. And so these are interesting <laughs> things to think about <laughs> where you, you, don't, you, you know that you don't use a lot of your things, but you have them anyway. And so anyway, going back to small space design, it's really important, and I'm sure Ken's team deals with this when they're working with a client, is to really understand how that person lives, what their systems and habits are. When they come home, what do they do? Where do they put their keys down? Where do they put their shoes? Where do they put their clothes? Where do they go when they wake up in the morning? What's the first thing they do? that all needs to flow into the design of your home, especially with elderly. As you said, that that bungalow piece is really important because you don't want to build a tiny home with a loft for a 60-year-old woman. No. You just don't want to do that. And so it's you can do so many things with such a small space. And I guess the couple, both of them have to be on board. Like they have to have 
you've got to connect. This can't be opposites attracts, right? Like this, this is, you have, to, you have to be on the same page. You have to be on the same page. However, if anyone is not on the same page, it just takes a little bit of convincing. And most of the clients that I have who have said, my husband's really not into this or my wife would never be able to say goodbye to her shoes. I say, come to my house and see how I live. And I'm going to show you my, we also have a 10 by 10 storage unit. So I cheat a little bit, but I'm human. The closet, (laughs) tiny house. Okay. And we have a child who will eventually need his own space. And that is a huge question we get asked. What what happens when Bodhi gets older or we want to have another child? And my answer is, I'm just going to get another tiny house because I can do that now. <laughs> but So my question, or my, my one comment would be, so I guess there's no man caves in tiny homes. Oh my gosh, Ken, I'm going to walk you around the property, what? and I'm going to show you my husband's man caves. He has a massive tool room. He's got, I mean, this is a unique situation, but he has uh, an outshed that he... He has a massive okay. tool room. He also I was just about to say that you literally step outside and yeah. that's your man cave, yeah. right? That's yeah. how you look Nature at it. Nature is your man yeah. cave. Nature is your man cave. Yeah, it's amazing. Mm-hmm. So there's no limit. I mean, I guess with you, Ken, so what are they... I guess it's you have to factor in how big is the bedroom, how big is the closet space, how big is the bathroom. I know that you were saying that you don't have a three-piece, you have a two-piece because the sink for the kitchen is right next door. It's literally three, four feet away. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you've got a little living area. And uh, I mean, so when you're designing your spaces for that extra dwelling. Yeah, so from our perspective, um, no, our, no, one, we have to meet a no, minimum Ontario building code, right? That's Oh, the lovely OBC. Right? So we have our minimum <laughs> no, room sizes, ceiling height, natural lighting. There's 800 pages to the OBC. Yeah, all I of learned that. that. Kind of the You're, compendium is 1,600 pages. <sighs> plumbing, fire separations, all that kind of stuff. Now, when we're specifically talking about tiny homes and garden units and coach houses and all this kind of stuff, a lot of what we do is site plan development, right? Because every city has their zoning bylaw as far as what's, you know, the setbacks from the lot lines, lot coverage, landscape area, number of parking spaces, you know, height, number of bedrooms, all these kind of things that um, will restrict this, uh, you know, coach house or tiny home. So that's, that's some of our challenges is especially, you know, when we have smaller lot sizes, you know, there's only so much room to work, right? There's only so many places that you can put a car. You know, the, uh, the space from the back of the house to the rear fence line is only so big. And so sometimes that is uh, challenging right now depending if you want to do a traditional stick frame build type of structure versus a tiny home uh, versus a modular unit you know depending which route you want to go because they each one of those options has a different cost yes. factor right a traditional stick frame build is probably going to be your most expensive way of building you know versus a tiny home or a modular unit right so if a uh, if there's a budget in place there, which, which there is for everybody, will dictate you know, which, which route they go. So if they're gonna be looking at a tiny home or a modular unit, you know, we're working within kind of a preset size. You know? And sometimes that length of unit right, can be restrictive because we only have so much width on the lot or so much depth. That's the challenging part. You're always longer than wider on a space for a tiny home. Yeah. Is that fair to say? It's not really a square yeah, box. Yeah, because they're, they're designed on like a trailer frame. Yes. Right? And so, and they are longer than wider. So, and again, like there's only so many different ways that you can position that unit. But so uh, like ultimately the bigger the lot, the easier it is to comply with these requirements uh, versus a small, really small in-town lot. And especially in these newer subdivisions, there are big houses on small lots. So it can be very challenging for some people who do live in like some of these newer subdivisions who want to do some type of unit, uh, it's tougher for them because they don't have, like their backyard is 25 feet deep, yeah. you know? 
7.5 meters, right? Um, versus the, some of the older, uh, you know, 1950s, 1960s properties that are, you know, smaller houses on bigger lots. So we're definitely seeing it more in the older neighborhoods adding these units versus like the newer subdivisions. And I guess when you get the client, you get the property, you take a look at things, you determine whether or not I'm going to go the traditional stick frame or you make a recommendation on should we go modular? Should we go this route or that route? Yeah. So depending on, you know, how the client comes to us, you know, whether it's through Bianca and, and her tiny home uh, business or if it's a client coming to us directly, you know, that conversation is, you know, what type of build do you want to do? What's the space available that we have to work with? You know, and, you know, there's some, and, and talking about budget. So I got a client right now who, you know, they do have a smaller space and they have a smaller budget. So I'm like, well, I think a tiny home or a modular unit is probably a better route for you versus a traditional stick frame build. And then we start bringing in other professionals, right? So once we kind of determine what type of build, then I'll refer them out to a person like Bianca or we have another company, um, another business that we partner with for shipping container homes. Yep. And I, I just redirect them to those professionals. And then once they've set on a size of the unit or the type of modular unit or the size of the tiny home, then we'll put that into the site plan as far as all the dimensions and setbacks and we submit to the city for the permit. Okay, so I know that there's two different avenues for you guys here regarding costs and, and I'm familiar with building traditional ways where I'm not a fan of square footage pricing. I've never done the square footage price. I've had clients ask me square footage price and I just like it doesn't exist in my scope of work. But generally speaking, you're building around three, four hundred dollars a square foot for a typical home. And that's not low, that's more mid to high kind of thing. What kind of a ballpark would we be for, I guess, your version of a tiny home and then, Ken, your version of a tiny or dwelling? Um, what kind of square footage price are you guys seeing based on what you've already worked on? Yeah, so um, my experience is to stick frame building these, uh, these units. And to be honest, we haven't built a whole lot just because the zoning bylaws have only been around. For they like, just started. Like, they just started, just like a year, right? Some of them are really just only a year old. And so a lot of the stuff we are, we're in right now is still in the designing and the planning stage. Um, but there are a number that have been built. Um, and the numbers that we're seeing coming in right now are, you know, this is for your typical, let's say, 600 uh, square foot, 6,700 square foot in um, secondary dwelling unit, detached coach house. Um, we're in around that 200 to 250 grand yeah. to build them. About 200,000 for the build. And then you can spend, you know, 30, 40, 50 grand on just the landscaping uh, work that's required. Like a lot of people forget about the landscaping, right? Because when you're building a new structure in your backyard, there's a lot of excavation work and trenching yep. of services. Yep. You know, so you have to resod the lawn. You gotta you gotta create walkways and pathways to the structure. You, have, you know, you got maybe rebuild fencing. You gotta widen the driveway. Like there's lots of other landscaping elements that people totally just forget about. That's what I've seen with. The Toronto-based laneway homes is that it is almost as expensive as building a, a normal structure when you start putting it all together. But I guess Bianca, with yours, it's going to be dramatically less. It will be. Yeah. Yeah. That two hundred thousand dollars at around six seven hundred square feet, you can look at two hundred thousand dollars for around four tiny homes um, for a premium custom-built tiny home. When you're looking at around anywhere from two to three and four, we'll cap it at. You're looking anywhere at a base model at around 100, 110, and then, um, and that's pretty much just a finished shell with interior, nothing crazy standard. Um, you're looking at about 150,000 for, for a decent, decently sized 300, 400 square foot tiny home. 
that may not have too many crazy additions. 150 to 200,000 for a, a big tiny house is a comfortable budget. Cool. Okay. I want to get into mechanical next, but I just want to remind everybody that the tiny home show, which you guys are all going to be a part of, are you going to be there, Ken? Uh, yeah, I'm actually there. Uh, well, we're there the whole the whole uh, weekend. All four, four four days you're going to yeah, be there. All four days, and I'm speaking on two of those days. Oh, that's awesome! So everyone, tiny home show, August fourth to seventh, Ancaster Fairgrounds Municipal Day Thursday. Uh, Twelve plus models are going to be there, so you can actually walk through these models and experience what. I, I guess what sizes are the, each of the models? Are, is there a range from a There's small? A range. Okay, so they'll get a very good idea of mm -hmm. what this minimum amount of square footage feels like. Yeah. So I encourage everybody that's living in a 10,000 square foot home with two people to come by. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. <laughs> and then also, yeah, so Ken is legal, legalsecondsuites.com. And then his email is Ken, uh, B-E-K-E-N-D-A-M at gmail.com. And his Instagram is Ken, B-E-K-E-N-D-A-M on uh, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And then Bianca, uh, yours is The Giving Tree and also uh, Tiny Home Show. And it's uh, tinyhome.show and thegivingthefamily.com. Thegivingtreefamily.com. Sorry, thegivingtreefamily.com. And it's also at thegivingtree.tinyhome. All right, so let's talk mechanical now because that's important. We live in Canada. We have four seasons. Well, we have two seasons, technically speaking, so hot and cold. What are the challenges there for you guys? I'll take this one. So um, when I'm consulting with my clients, it's really about, um, if we're going to be talking about a, you know, specifically tiny homes, uh, coach houses, laneway houses, so a new, a new structure in your yard. It's really about, uh, you know, what's the electrical capacity we have at the property or what can we get to the property? You know, um, so if we're looking at an existing house that's on a piece of land, and then you'd be adding a tiny home into the backyard. Well, can we get a 200 amp service to the property? Because the existing house is going to have a certain amount of amperage, and then the tiny home is going to need a certain amount of amperage to run it. So correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought all municipalities, their feed coming from the city side is 200 amps. But well, most homes are 100 amp, and then you have to upgrade to a 200 amp. Isn't that correct? So sometimes upgrading the service can be easier or difficult, depending on Where? the existing setup, yeah. right? So like a lot of older neighborhoods still have overhead wires in, in the neighborhood. Well, you know, Toronto's most, all overhead. Most times you can, it's easy to get a 200 amp upgrade. Yeah. Right? And some of the newer neighborhoods, um, it's all buried electrical services. And sometimes that buried line coming in is actually not rated for 200 amps. It may only be rated oh. for maybe a max of 125. Uh, and then, so if you have to get your underground cable upgraded, which we've done. Expensive. But depending on where the, the transformer is in that neighborhood, you know, it's one thing if it's located right in front of your yard, but it's another thing if it's like 10 houses down and around the corner, uh, because if that buried cable is not rated uh, to go up to 200, now you're into a lot of additional expense of, of basically trenching all the way back to the transformer, which is like 10 houses away, uh, so going through all of your under underneath all of your neighbors' driveways and everything, making um, lots of friends. Yeah, it can get very, very. Um, and we've we've ran into that uh, issue before, and so that is the first thing I ask people. You know, and we do have to engage the electrician. We have to engage the local uh, power company to see can we get this to the property because that will determine you know how you're going to heat and cool uh, your unit. You know, is it going to be all electrical? Is it going to be like ductless split systems um, with electric tankless heater? Or do you have to implement, you know, gas, 
right? And, and, and run a gas line back there and run a, a gas tankless heater or a little gas furnace or, or something. Is it um, better to bring in some passive building elements to the structure and then stay electric? Because I know I've had a number of conversations with building passive people, and I love talking to those people because they think outside of the norm, right? And they've always said electric. They've always said build the walls better, build the windows better, build everything better, and bring the least amount of energy into your home to heat it or cool it. Well, like electrical is always the easiest. Yes. Right? You're just dealing with wires. You're not dealing with gas lines and venting and all this other and stuff. And cheapest. Right? And yeah, it's, it's the cheapest typically, right? I'm not, you know, Bianca can probably speak to more of the passive type of stuff because um, that's not really in my... <laughs> My, I'm uh, dancing. I, I get jazzed. <laughs> I get so jazzed with passive house design. Yeah. You have to be. It's it kind of makes sense to be yeah. that way, right? So, did you guys implement it in your home here? We did. Yeah. Unfortunately, the only location we could put our home is west facing, so we're in the sun all day. So we have a lot of passive heating, um, but we have zero passive cooling. So um, I've grown some hops. We have some, I guess, more so landscaping opportunities. Some some shade sales, but um, in terms of heat saving it's it's easy because we get the sun in the winter so oftentimes we don't even need to have a fireplace or the electric heater on because the sun is just shining into the house and it's heating the house and um in a perfect world i would have had in-floor heating which is a is a very low draw anyway and so yeah we we did implement it because it just makes sense to to go more off-grid um, especially if you are eventually moving your home it makes it easier what other mechanical i guess water we have to deal with water and how is that implemented? Well, you're branching yeah, like off. It really depends on if, if your unit is in somebody's backyard versus like Bianca's, which is out here in this beautiful natural setting, rural setting. You know, depending on what, you know, how you deal with your, your sanitary, right? Your sewage and, and your water. You know, and that will go back to the particular uh, city in the zoning bylaw yeah. and services that are available to that location. So a lot of times, if, so if I'm going to speak about an urban setting, yeah. okay, so if you have a unit in someone's backyard, you know, uh, you can just extend the sanitary from the principal house out into the yard to connect into that, that unit. And that's a pretty straightforward, common thing. Same you're thing you're with, connecting it though to the head of it before it goes into the main dwelling. Is that correct? Different cities will have their different requirements about oh, okay. how they want to see that connection done. Some do permit the connection through the principal building. Oh, okay. Uh, and then just have one connection at the city side. Some will allow you to actually uh, run a completely separate sanitary right to the city connection. So they have, there's actually two connections coming off of your property. I remember in Toronto, we were doing a legal basement. We had to split it. We literally had to deem the one waste for the unit in the basement and then the other line for the rest of the house was a separate and then it created into a wide to get to the city side. Every yeah. every city's uh, whatever they you know yeah. water department will dictate how you do the connection. Okay. Yeah. And then getting water, well you're taking it off supply anyway, so you're branching off, you're connecting it from the meter. Yeah, yeah. So, and, and some cities will allow you to do, uh, you know, have two water meters. So, where so that each unit can have their own separate uh, water metering and water billing. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, water and sanitary is a municipal thing, yeah. right? So, you have to go back to your municipality and see what they want, uh, what their requirements are for making those connections. You know, and again, if you're in a rural setting, then you're, you know, you might need a septic tank or a holding tank. You might. <laughs> yeah. Need so, a, how does that work for you, Bianca? Created. I don't yeah. know. 
Yeah, maybe Bianca can speak yeah, to that. Yeah, I not wanted to interject because I will talk about this forever. <laughs> so um, I'm glad that you you talked about urban first because urban and rural cookups are are totally different, can be totally different. So for for the permanent secondary dwelling unit versus a temporary secondary dwelling unit, it is a cart before the horse situation for a lot of people. So if I can kind of take it back to the end user who's buying a tiny house, you have to be very careful what hookups you decide to put in that house. Whereas with who Ken is, is dealing with, you're building the infrastructure to stay on the property. Well, this person is building the infrastructure to potentially move it somewhere else that may not have the same infrastructure as, as the previous property. And so um, one thing to note is many of the temporary secondary dwelling unit um, allowances that in municipalities I'm dealing with are all in rural settlement areas. And so you are dealing with um, septic, you are dealing with wells, and you are dealing with potential hydro from, from, from lines. But you also have the opportunity to go off-grid, whereas in an urban setting, you usually don't. Municipalities want you to hook up to municipal services. In fact, it's written into the bylaws in most cases. So in, in rural settings, we can kind of start there. You'll have, if you want to build a tiny house to eventually place it in a rural setting, you're looking at sewage. If you build a plumbed toilet into your home, you have to hook that up to a septic. Well, what happens if you find a, an opportunity to live somewhere and that septic is 50, 60 years old and the property owner says you are absolutely not going to hook into this thing. And second to that, you have to get a septic flow verification test to see if you can handle the additional load. And a lot of property owners, if they don't know anything about their septic, which I can guarantee you is most people, yeah, yeah will <laughs> say, I have no idea. Then, But someone goes poking around in your septic and you have to say you have to get an upgrade. That's just a lot of liability on somebody's head just to allow someone to park on their property. So there are a lot of um, conversations to be had about allowing off-grid sewage. And for me, I have a composting toilet. It's a self-contained mulch basin composter. I have zero waste from that other than every three months we, we, we take out a, a basin and we compost that appropriately. Uh, it's human matter, so we don't put it in our gardens or anything. But anyway, so when you go off-grid sewage, you can do incinerating is, is what I recommend. Incinerating toilets are very clean. They do draw a little more power, so you couldn't necessarily run a small solar pack off of that. But in terms of off-grid sewage, you then you jump into an off-grid, a uh, gray water system. So usually, so under the Ontario Building Code, um, composting and Incinerating toilets are class two sewage systems. When you apply for those permits, it usually jumps you into a class four um, gray water system. So you have to figure out where to put that, uh, which is usually a French drain or, or something of the like, weeping tile. And so, but then you also have to ensure that that person isn't creating black water or then they're, 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 you know, they're creating uh, safe routes for their gray water. And a lot of municipalities just don't want to deal with that. They don't want to, they get the Ministry of the Environment involved. They do, especially a lot of these rural areas, and I say this with a lot of love, but municipalities love to include a lot of protected zoning in like every single mm. property. So then you have to rope in somebody. If you look at the grid, it's like, oh, there's a, a flood zone in what's not really a flood zone, but now we have to talk to the conservation authority. So then you're dealing with all of these types of things. You have um, uh, what could be a very short permitting process into a very long drawn out situation. So back to the systems, um, you're looking at off-grid sewage, then off-grid gray water. You have to get the water there. So a lot of people will hook up into the main dwelling, which is quite easy, um, or the main well, uh, or you have to build your own well and put your in your own septic system. But for temporary units, they don't want to do that. It's really invasive for a property. And as someone who designs around the principles of permaculture and, and living with the land. That's not exactly what we want to see being done. So 
That means policy has to include off-grid living systems for rural areas. And it would be amazing if they could do that for urban landscapes because in places like Hamilton, you have some places that can carry the infrastructure of additional loads, but then you have a lot of other places that are dumping all of their sewage into Coots Paradise. So you've got a lot of these conversations that are happening. So this is not happening yet. This is some of the uphill battling that you're dealing with right now. It's a for case the urban, case. the urban side of things, or yeah. not the urban, sorry, for the tiny home in rural. That's what's happening right now. It's case by case, but everything is supported. So one of the things that I've run into is that there's a lot of misinformation out there that you can't go off grid, you can't have composting toilets, you can't have gray water systems, you can't, you can't, you can't, you can't. But all of these do have policies in the Ontario Building Code. It's just a matter of whether the building department and the planning department in the municipality will allow it and recognize it. And, and you go through those specific motions. And in my experience, some are really open to it and some are not. And the ones who are really open to it are dealing with it anyway. For example, they're up on the shield, they're, so they don't even have a lot of septic systems in some of their properties anyway, so yeah. I know it can't, so we're so used to a building inspector showing up on site and we don't really have to deal with bylaws all that much. The problem with, I guess, with your, your Bianca, your situation is that you think you're going in with just a building inspector and you're dealing with the OBC. What I find, and, and I try to not be confrontational with this, is when they develop the zoning or the lines, it's a very thick gray marker that was put around this area. So then all of a sudden their easiest way to look at this is I need to bring in conservation. I need to bring mm -hmm. this and bring, and that just adds so much more of a headache, possibly cost time delays, all that stuff. What's the best way to approach this when you're looking for a spot? How do we get rid of all that red tape? How do we get around it without doing things illegally? Because we don't want to, the whole purpose you have a tiny home in the middle of nowhere is because you want to care about the middle of nowhere. So yeah. how do we do that? Yeah, well, I mean, the conservation and the MNR and all of these these people who are usually roped into some of these more rural settings, the Greenbelt, Niagara Escarpment Commission, all of that, they're important entities and they need to be listened to and they need to be adhered to. And as someone, I'm a self-reclaimed environmentalist and I respect what they're doing. However... It is, it's, it's almost too much and too restrictive and too, and too difficult. So in terms of the ways to approach it is just do the due diligence. So what Ken was speaking about at the beginning of the show is, you know, to come to us with your property, check your zoning, check your plans, do all of these kind of due diligence for the, the folks that I work with. Now, I'm not a licensed planner, so I usually will do that for them in, and I have a very lengthy contract that states that I'm not a licensed planner, but I know how to read bylaws, I know how to go into zoning maps, I know how to look at protected layers, and I know how to have conversations with municipalities. And then I send them to someone like Ken, who can legally look into that and give them a proper report. But usually, um, because I know how to speak tiny homes, people will come to me and I can have those conversations and I end up getting different answers than even someone like Ken gets. So um, it's just navigating those conversations in a unique way. But anyway, so you want to do your due diligence, you want to see on your property that you have a significant amount of property, you're not dealing with any restrictions such as tree, like tree lines, setbacks, all of those other kind of things that you're gonna be dealing with anyway. But in terms of navigating those protected layers, you just wanna know what you're walking into. So if you're a tiny home, a potential tiny home tenant, you're a person who wants to buy a tiny home, you wanna look into your systems. So that's what I was speaking about before. You wanna know, okay, well, if I, locate this home somewhere, ideally I'd like to be on grid, or let's do a partial on or off grid. A lot of builders will build a plumbed toilet 
retrofit and then just put us put a composting toilet in there do two sets of plans so whatever municipality you're dealing with you can put in either plan don't build the house yet or build the house and you have all these contingencies so then when you're looking at municipalities you can say things uh, have these conversations about okay well there's it's in the Niagara Scarpman Commission you know exactly what you're going to do there you're just going to go straight to them you're working in different municipalities that expect you to rope in the conservation authority you can anticipate that that's going to add a year or two to your to your plan and and so on and so forth so really just do the research and know what you're getting yourself into because that can either eliminate a parking opportunity I like to call them locations a, lo- a potential place to locate your home <laughs> or or, or not. So um, come to someone like me, talk to someone like Ken. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like, and I can, uh, I can echo that, especially if you're living in these protected areas, the very first conversation you have is with the conservation authority. Yeah. Cause bef- like the building department is actually the last department you talk to yeah. in, 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 the, in the, the world of development work, right? This is in some way, this is like a small development, right? And there's development processes we go through. And you always want to go to the hardest people first, which is going to be the conservation authority. Um, find out what they want, where they want it, the setbacks, all the kind of stuff. And then you work, you work slowly, you work towards the building division. Yeah, and one of the things that you can do as well, I'm a big fan of, of processes and webbing and looking at, if I'm going to be asked this question 10 steps from now, so I'm going to find the answer now. And so that's how I work as a systems and, and consult with people is we're going to look at the full picture. So with what Ken is saying, to approach those and see what that looks like, that's your timeline. But there are some conversations you can have that will, you know, that 10 steps from then, can the, 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 pro, the project can just be thrown out the window. But had you done that, that research 10 steps prior, it wouldn't. And so, for example, that is for tiny homes specifically, for zoning, is the minimum size requirement. And this is a really, really, really tough piece of the puzzle with a lot of municipalities is they maybe they have a secondary dwelling unit bylaw or they have, a ten, they have the garden suite bylaw, in, in which what I'm using, but their minimum size requirement is 700 square feet. Well, that's not a tiny home. No. So now you have the conversation where people just throw it out the window and they say, oh, well, I can't do it. But you actually have to go a little further from that. So I've completely turned around projects just by one little sentence, and it's the minor variance. OBC is minimum 188. So you have an argument to ask the municipality if they would recognize a smaller dwelling, and you can apply for that sizing variance. And most of the time, they will say yes. And if they don't say yes, and I appreciate your combative nature, but Ken and I have been dealing with Hamilton specifically and NIMBYism and a few other things. These are respectful conversations that we're having with municipalities and part of that respectful conversation is to say nobody has the position to say no to affordable housing solutions. So if you're going to say no to a minor variance of 200 square feet from 700 to 400 or 500, why? Tell me why. You can challenge it. And you can challenge it. And you should challenge it. Absolutely. You know what's, uh, no, we get a lot of, no, we're, because I'm at Committee of Adjustment once a month. Easy. Oh, I love the COA. And, um, <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, some of the, the stuff that we're designing is on the smaller side, right? And now, uh, you know, some cities, some cities have gotten rid of the minimum size requirement, which is great, uh, but some still have them. And, you know, the ones that do have them, or we do have to get a variance for a, a reduced uh, unit size, um, it's the same type of comment as, like, you know, um, who, who would want to live in something like this size, and I'm like, who, 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 who are wouldn't you? want to live in? Who are you to to state what's desirable or not for correct. somebody to live in? Uh, correct. Yeah. Exactly. Right? Um, desirability is such a personal choice. It you is know? so. And, and that's actually a question that's come up. 
Like they've questioned that before. They've said, who, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Really? I had an act yeah. committee of adjustment this past um, week in Hamilton for some of our, our unit sizes, e- even though we didn't, because Hamilton has gotten rid of the minimum unit size requirement, but they're still questioning the size of the unit, even though it's not required, but it's part of the conversation. It's part of the neighbor complaints and all this kind of stuff. Is Did that, you question the person asking that question, what size dwelling they live in? Well, and that's the yeah. thing is, is, is <laughs> cause I have a funny feeling what size it is, right? You know, committee, yeah. committee of adjustment is, uh, you know, typically it's older people who, you know, who it's three blind mice. I'm they just don't say necessarily that. You know, know any of the things. They don't know yeah. the, the communities. They don't know the parameters. They don't know anything. All yeah, they're and, looking and, at is a sheet you know, of paper. Things are changing, right? People's living uh, styles are changing. So I just find it funny how they, 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 they're the ones who get to determine what's desirable or not. Yeah. The know. perception I'm so glad you brought this up because NIMBYism is, well, you have a whole platform to, to you talk about it. I've, I've hosted Ken on a couple workshops and he's going to be speaking to this at the Tiny Home Show. The not in my backyard is so crippling to this movement and it's really halting so many needed projects and dealing with people who don't recognize what this is, don't recognize tiny living, don't understand it because they just don't know. And it's really, really, really unfortunate to see the, the people who are making these, these decisions are in positions of privilege. And they may not necessarily see this as a need, but they will soon. But in all fairness, shouldn't a representative of this segment be a part of that committee? Well, so that's what I've been advocating for is to have a wide, diverse uh, it should be. segment of the population part of our committee of adjustments. Because a lot of them are, they do come from places of privilege um, and they're not representative of everybody, yeah. right? Um, are there are there young people on committee? Are there people? Uh, oh, there's never young people on committee. On, on committees, um, they're not, right? Guess I know what I'm applying for. And I'm just saying it's it's it is already they're they're shooting you down before you even are given an opportunity to discuss it. Not not argue it, discuss it. Yeah, that's yeah. the 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 downfall of so it. So on Thursday, uh, the first day of the tiny home show, um, I I will be presenting on uh, zoning bylaws. Um, and like the, the title of the presentation is, uh, keeping the peace, a common sense approach to zoning bylaws and how, if we actually have, you know, good drafted zoning bylaws, we can really create peace in our neighborhoods. Cause a lot of times when we're applying for a variance, it's, it's oftentimes for a very outdated yeah. zoning bylaw provision, sure. right? That should just not be in the bylaw anymore. And, you know, a notice goes to all the neighbors who they're not, they're not educated in planning policy and zoning policy and housing uh, density and all this kind of stuff. And, and, you know, uh, and this is where NIMBYism really comes in. Right. And so if we can eliminate a lot of these outdated zoning bylaws, make it very easy as of right, you know, to be able to do things, we can really keep peace in our neighborhoods. And so Bianca, were you fortunate enough to get anybody from any of the municipalities, the bylaws officers or anybody to come to the show or? Yes. Oh, Really? Yeah. Oh, sir. Yes. Okay. That's good to know. We have over 30 municipalities coming. We have mayors, we have counselors, we have affordable housing units, we have building officials, we've got zoning, we've got planning, we've got, we've got a lot. So they're going to listen. They're going to listen and they're eager to, which is so exciting. The conversations that I have with these people are, it's almost like the light is, is there's, there's a fire there for a lot of them. Not all of them, <laughs> but people are interested because cities have no solutions. They don't. 
They have no solutions for development. Their, uh, their cities are very anti-urban boundary expansion. The, they have, as I mentioned before, accommodation, population growth accommodation, sustainability goals. They have so many things to reach and they don't know how to reach them. So this is why the one county that I'm working with, they immediately recognize this as an affordable housing solution where they don't have to change any policies. They don't have to do any paperwork. They have to do basically nothing. They just had to create a little bit of a bylaw in their OPA, put it through. All of the counselors were so excited. I remember going to the delegation when this first, or the meeting when this first was, was drafted and brought forth. And 99% of the counselors for all the municipalities in the county were gung-ho for it. And they were all recognizing it because some of the municipalities also fall in tourism areas and, and, and you know, all of these other different things. And so at the show, we have a really, really diverse group as far as Temiskaming. I've seen, you know, even as close as Burlington. So people are listening and people are excited. So we've invited every municipality, every building, every official, every councillor, every mayor, and people are coming out of the woodwork who we didn't even invite, um, you know, directly. And there's only so much research we can do on <laughs> gathering emails. Um, but for the municipal day, it's it's just a, it's a space to influence and educate, to show these people this is what a tiny house is, this is what inclusive zoning looks like, this is what non-restrictive building code looks like. And so the whole day is really curated. I'm hosting the whole day. So that's on the Thursday. That's on the first it's day. It's on the Thursday, yeah. Okay. So register for it. You can still come. There's plenty of space. Um, but yeah, they're coming. What's the primary concern with this city? Is it just the cowboys are going to come out of the woodwork and start building dwellings that are going to fail or disrupt the community? Is that the primary? Well, so um, it, I'll, I'll take this one. Because, because I do want to <laughs> say you guys are making this professional and there is a difference between a professional builder and designer and everybody that's attached to a dwelling and the yahoos, you know what I mean? So go ahead. Mm-hmm. So, um, so a lot of the complaints we get from neighbors uh, when we're applying, you know, in the cases where we do need a variance for whatever reason, a lot of the complaints is the same complaints we get from neighbors. Absentee landlords or absentee property owners it's all about the money Mm -hmm. we don't care about their neighborhoods you know it's too it's too intense like it's too many families or too many dwelling units on one piece of land um coming from generations back in the 60s and 70s where you had a family of five kids and two parents in the same dwelling or not to mention the rest of the world who lives this way yes (laughs) so there's a lot there's a lot of education we need to do as an industry to the public about um why we need these types of units and and you know uh, making best use of our infrastructure dollars as well um and so that's the type of complaints we see you know um you know sometimes with parking even though parking is not even something we need uh, for some of these applications, yet they still talk about parking and complaining about not having enough space and all. But this most of these people would be doing public transit or cycling. Absolutely. For the majority of them, I'm assuming, right? Yeah, like the, you know, we had just uh, real quick. We I had one application in Hamilton to, to convert an existing garage into a secondary dwelling unit, a legally established garage, which is permitted by the zoning bylaw. Now, at that time, we needed we needed a reduction in one parking space. Okay, to, to permit the uh, the unit, and it was located on a transit route. is on an HSR bus route within 120 meters of a bus stop. Well, we had I don't know what the exact number was, but it's close to 150 signature petition against 
this application. It didn't make it into the media. I was in the spectator. Um, How many homes and, are there? And this was back in April. So it was the, the, the bungalow was converted into two units, okay. which we did by right. Uh, no variances needed. We had the building permit for it. And then we're applying to convert the garage into an, an, an additional unit as well. And the client was actually Ukrainian. He's actually, and this was time when the Ukrainian war was just uh, taking place and he wanted to create spaces for his family to come over. And this was a very good, you know, reason why. But uh, there was you know, a couple neighbors in particular who just hated this idea of a garage being converted into a unit. Um, and so they riled up all the neighbors. They got a petition signed. They got the ward counselor involved. And, you know, they, they fought hard against us. Um, wow. you know, they presented the Committee of Adjustment. It did get denied. Like, it was... It was like unanimous, it was like nine zero denial of our application for a reduction in one parking spot. Like that was the only variance, but uh, they didn't even talk about parking. That wasn't even discussed. Like they were complaining about density and garbage and, you know, it's going to destroy their neighborhoods and all these other nonsense reasons. Um, long story short, you know, we, um, we have appealed to Alpat and we did have our hearing this past week. Uh, we have yet to receive the final decision from Alpat. What's um, Alpat? If, if your variance gets denied, there is a mechanism for you to, for, for either party okay. uh, to appeal the decision to the province. And we let the province decide. Oh, wow. Uh, is it make, Land Association Planning? Yeah, the Land Planning uh, Tribunal, Ontario Land. Uh, they've since changed the name, but it's oh, Ontario I've Land I've never Tribunal. gone that far. Okay. Yeah. And so, um, so, so we, we've appealed the decision. But guess what happened? Within a month after... This whole debacle of it being in the media and the denial and there's like opinion letters written, to, you know, into the uh, spectator and all this kind of stuff. Council went and changed the zoning bylaw. They, they made an amending uh, zoning amendment to reduce all of the parking requirements in Hamilton for secondary units and secondary dwelling units detached. So we had this big uproar of destroying a neighborhood, pitting neighbor against neighbor, uh, for an outdated zoning bylaw provision that just a month later, council decides, yes, guys, we need to get rid of this uh, parking requirement yeah. in light of the nimbyism that was uh, shown here. Um, <laughs> and, and so, so and, and this goes to my, my point of common sense zoning bylaw and keeping the peace. Yeah. And so it's great. I applaud the city of, of Hamilton for making this change. Because uh, yeah. that will reduce like so many variances for parking-related reasons, uh, which is not typically the number one issue we have. I, I'm not trying to pick a fight with any city officials, but what exactly are they doing then if it took them that long to get this done after someone spoke up? Well, it's such, what are a, they it's such a brand no, it's such a brand new bala. It's only been allowed in the past year, right? And so our application was actually the first one in, uh, on, on the East Mountain. Uh, so it's Requesting. the first type of application okay. that's kind of was uh, being brought forward. And so the reason committee denied it was because there's, uh, there's, a, lot, there's a lack of uh, understanding and knowledge uh, and experience around, around these secondary dwelling unit detached and converting garages. And so committee just didn't have any kind of, they were very uncertain about it. Some of them didn't even realize that we're allowed three units on one property, even though that bylaw has been around for over a year already. But the community and the committee should be doing some homework of their own exactly. to find out what's going so on in these neighborhoods. So this is why we need to be, as industry professionals, we yes. need to be educating yeah. uh, the public. We need to be educating our municipal officials. 
about you know the desirability of these units, what they look like. I think this is I, I applaud Bianca for organizing the tiny home show to educate people because it's a lot of just misunderstanding. It's a misinformation about about what what these units are and what they look like. You know, we create hundreds of legal secondary dwelling units that look beautiful. They're well designed. They're well laid out. They meet all Ontario minimum building codes. Like we're doing everything legally. Like that's my company, yeah. legalsecondsuites.com, yeah. right? Like we're not here to, to destroy people's neighborhoods. We're here to create great spaces for people to live. And the right? irony is that if you're, if you're looking at it from a position of privilege and you're assuming or, or thinking that these are trailers or they're trailer park people or, or however the, the, the veil is, if you look at folks who are building secondary dwelling units, they have infrastructure. Building a secondary dwelling unit, a permanent secondary dwelling unit, is going to cost you around $200,000. That's not, that's not chump change. And so not to put dollars and cents together, but there, and then folks who I'm talking to, they have to be able to finance and mortgage a $150,000 home. Now, sure, they can find a, definitely a less expensive unit, and, and a lot of people do. A lot of people will self-build, hire contractors, do all those different things, find ways to build a lot less expensively. But the conversation still stands, is that these people have well-paying jobs, they are they're they're entering into land agreements with property owners who see value in their living and who they are and so these aren't just you know people coming out of nowhere and and putting in these homes to just disrupt the system these people are really interested in a very intentional way of living there's always math in construction i've always looked at math and i'm just trying to figure out these people i don't know who they are and i'm not going to judge them for you know basically abusing the system to try to get this not approved but don't they realize that by bringing more people into dwellings that are properly built into communities, you basically feed the mom and pop shops, the community, you have more density of good people, you have thriving businesses that are not corporations. Like, are they not understanding that math of that community? Like, No, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because there's uh, two examples here that I uh, know of recently. Um, actually, in Mississauga, uh, in, in the local paper, there was uh, an article put out about um, how creating these units in these neighborhoods is bringing by, uh, you know, revitalizing these yes. neighborhoods, bringing people back into these neighborhoods. Yes. Um, a lot of the local schools are suffering from low enro enrollment. That's another point, right? exactly. Um, and so they need more kids in these neighborhoods to keep these schools thriving and, and stuff like that. I had a minor variance application again, got denied. Uh, Man, how do you handle ago. all that? I don't uh, I'm Ken starting, is a champion. I got to develop thicker skin. I do take a lot of things personally, but um, I did have a variance get denied recently. This is in the Barton, the Barton Street uh, Village in Hamilton. Okay. Um, so it's a downtown, you know, corridor zone. And there's, you know, it's all mixed use. There's you no know, commercial ground floor and there's residential units above. Uh, but it's, an, it's a part of the older part of the city. So there's a lot of boarded up, vacant commercial storefronts. Okay. And it's, it, we're having this conversation, this dialogue, because we're, our variance was to convert ground floor commercial into more residential units. My argument was we need more people in this area to keep these stores going, to bring more people, bring more foot traffic, to bring business to the already existing businesses there. Right, like this, this core is, is supporting suffering. local. Yeah, yeah, bringing more people into the neighborhood. But it got denied because you know they wanted to see more commercial on the ground floor. I'm like, okay, well, like, you know, 
fine. Have more boarded up commercial. But it's a cart before people. horse thing, right? It's, yeah, the chicken or the egg, yeah, right? It's, um, you have to do both. It's all it is. You just got to get it going. Yeah, we got to get it going. You need more people to keep businesses going. But again, it brings, you know, it brings more people into the neighborhood which just helps everything else out. I want to talk a little bit about, uh, as we're getting close to wrapping up, not just yet, but I know that I'm fascinated by what other countries are doing for tiny homes. And I know like places like Finland and Norway and Iceland, they're really doing some interesting things. A lot of modular stuff. I've seen a lot of plywood integrated and almost snapped together and kind of dwellings. Are we, Canada, kind of hoping to get at that? I mean, if you look at history... Back in the 70s, Canada had the first passive house built, right? They brought it in Saskatchewan and it was done there. And then the government, for whatever reason, because they're really busy just not doing anything, they didn't really, you know, focus on it and work on it because Canada, you know, 40, 50 years later could have been a leader at that time. Are we trying to get to that point? Are we trying to pay attention to what other countries are doing with their tiny homes and getting it here, implementing it here, learning ideas from them? Yes, definitely. I think with passive house design specifically as it relates to tiny homes, modular tiny homes that you're you're going to be able to move eventually, you're kind of pigeon-held into that initial building envelope, that frame. And so whether it's still stick built with insulation and wood or it's steel frame or, you know, some people are are using hempcrete and different things you can't necessarily open up the conversation to do straw bale or cob or something like that. But for a traditional principal home and a permanent secondary dwelling unit, I, I don't know if you have anyone ever asking about straw bale or cob style building, which is covered in its, and it's got a policy and procedure, but yeah, my, my typical clients aren't big into the passive stuff yet. Uh, it's definitely part of the tiny home movement for mm-hmm. sure. Um, I, I, you know, my typical client is a, you know, typical property owner um, just looking to add another unit into their their home for whatever reason but it's it's definitely something that's very interesting to me um, actually I actually um, uh, had a meeting a zoom meeting this past uh, week with an accessibility consultant um, which is a whole other topic we don't necessarily have to go down this road but uh, just about just good universal design principles and well know, there's a lack of that in the OBC to be very honest like they have not updated that. Mm for accessibility and and if you speak to any paramedic having to go up a second floor on a whiny stair trying to get into a 24 inch bathroom with someone that's fallen it's difficult yeah and so yeah. the obc should be factoring that in and, and they are making changes they are you know they're making changes but as i'm helping more homeowners uh, especially for for their disabled child yes. trying to create a space you know, I'm um, I'm really fascinated by you know just good universal design principles about like how little changes in a, in a floor plan layout or a simple thing like a door size, yes, um, or a door swing, how the door swings into a room can make mm-hmm. such a huge difference. Pocket. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, if you think about other countries who are doing small space living already and doing it well, you're looking at the Scandinavians yes. who who really they understand that you know, kind of dark exterior, we're living with nature, we're living in the mountains, uh, and then light interior. It's light, it's airy, and so everything inside feels much bigger. And if you think about the Japanese and the Asian countries, they are doing it right. They've been doing that for centuries. They have been, and they have 200 square feet and a table. They're living, you know, they, they go to sleep they fold back their kitchen table and their chairs and it all goes sloop into the walls and then their beds come out and that's all the process and they live that way so they can live affordably and they live that way so they can live comfortably and they don't 
necessarily hate or love it. I, d I don't know firsthand what their feelings are, but there are a lot of countries who are doing No, they, they love it. There's mm -hmm. a video circling right now on social media, whether it's on TikTok or IG, of, uh, of a builder in Japan dismantling a house that didn't use a single nail. Insane. And so it's all the lumber was done a certain way. And, and I'm fascinated by the way they've carpentered that and put it all together mm -hmm. and how this structure is over a century old and they're dismantling it. It's still in great shape and taken care of. And they're just dismantling it to move it to a different location. Yeah. And they're going to rebuild the whole thing again all over again. That's what we should be doing. We're getting pretty creative. I mean, when it comes to exterior, Ken, it sounds like you need a permaculture designer on your team. <laughs> I'll send my application tomorrow. Um, but the thing I love about permaculture design is it is holistic systems thinking. Yes. And so when you're thinking holistically, you're using every single facet of not only your house, but your property. So you're living with the land, you're not living on the land. And so our house impl implements some permaculture design techniques in that um, you know, like I said, we have some passive cooling, we have some passive heating, but we also live harmoniously with the land. So we're we're connecting our off-grid capabilities. We are growing the hops, which I'll eventually make small batch beer into, and that's going to come back every year. And, my, and well, you know, please invite me for uh, when yes, you're ready. the inaugural <laughs> tapping. You guys are more than welcome to come. And so we are living resiliently by downsizing and living in our lifestyle the way that we are. Everything that goes into our house is either secondhand or it's repurposed, rematerialized. Our deck, remember during COVID, right when we all shut down and we all decided to do a bunch of building <laughs> yeah. projects. Well, we decided to build a large patio so we could extend our living space. My husband, being the thrifty Dutchman he is, he costed out everything we would need at Home Depot or Rona, the conventional route. It was going to cost us $3,000 for that deck. Well, being crafty, he looked on Facebook Marketplace and found a lady who was selling her farm and had a huge barn filled with a bunch of barn wood. And we spent $300 on premium old barn wood flooring. Uh, well, wood on, on our deck. And so wow. it's just that, but this is how we think. We think differently. And so it's kind of a lifestyle in that way. So when you're going on this trajectory, I'm not really answering your question very much, but no, no, no. Yeah. But that, that, <laughs> I love information like that because that's funny how it, it, it goes to misunderstanding the information. You don't realize that you can actually go out there and find better opportunities than the traditional way of doing things. Mm -hmm. There's the, always the traditional way is the simple way. Yes. Right. It's the easy way. And, you know, like everybody, people just want to take the easy route, right? And, mm -hmm. and it takes work to kind of figure out these other solutions. But those who are willing to put in the work and be able to work hard and come up with good solutions, they'll financially benefit from it. Yeah, the thought sure. processing is important because when you go those traditional routes, you're looking at the short term. I'm servicing a need now. And, I'm, and that's what we're working on. But when you think differently, you think extra, you think outside of the box, you think about how to accommodate yourself in the future and, and your future, future self. You don't know who that person is going to be, who's going to use the house after you, if anybody, the property after you, if anybody. You have to build resiliently. And not a lot of people think in those terms. So, yeah. I don't have a negative thing to say about tiny homes or tiny dwellings or anything like that. But is there a negative thing attached to it? So many negative <laughs> Okay. <laughs> if you guys want to share those, I'm just trying to figure out, because I don't think there's anything negative. Right. You are a highly functional adult and human. <laughs> I, 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 I like to think that I think, you know yeah. what I mean? So I'm like, yeah. I try to, I, I grew up in a house on College Street and Dufferin. 
five kids, yeah. two parents. Uh, one bedroom was for the three boys. One bedroom was for the two girls. And then one bedroom was for the, the parents. And then one bath upstairs. And then we did a second bath in the basement. That was the home. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a massive home, but that's what we were so used to. Bunk beds and, th- and a second, a third bed for the boys. And that's how whoever got up early got the bathroom first and yeah. then get out. So that's how we lived. I'm still dumbfounded when I'm dealing with clients that you have two parents and maybe one child and it's 10,000 square feet. 1,000%. I don't understand that way of living because that's that's a North American way. That's not a European. And mm-hmm. I'm European and then Canadian, right? So it's just, I guess it's just that mindset. That's the negative that people look at it and they don't understand it, that this is a possibility. The challenge is... It really comes down to this, how you measure success. How do you, how do you measure success? Well, Is, people tie their living situation with where they live, their home, their property, their location, with their, their value of like their, their net worth. And well, I'm a rich person, so I got to live in a rich neighborhood kind of thing. Yeah. But, you know, a good, a good. I e- haven't done that in 20 years. Elon Musk, right? Mm-hmm. The richest person, richest person in the world. He lives in boxable one of those boxable units um if you you don't know what that is google it but it's basically like a kind of modular unit like like almost like a tiny home and that's what he lives in and but that's all that somebody really needs everything that you would need to live and function can be in a small footprint well i think elon musk has a spaceship and uh, probably a house on another planet that he lives in. So I'm, I think this is his vacation home. So. But it's, you, you bring up a good point, Ken, is that everyone equates their success or their happiness to their, I guess, financial and dwelling yeah. presence, right? And I, I, and you can argue this. I, I know very wealthy people that are not happy, and I know very people that make an average living, and they're extremely happy. Yeah, It's how you look at things. And so I, I don't, I've never wanted... 10,000 square feet. It never made any sense to me. So it's like I could live in a thousand square feet. I can live in a small home. It, it makes sense because it, it makes sense to me. It just does make sense to me, but I'm not the norm. That's the thing about it. The way that I explain this to folks. So before I got into tiny house consulting, I was taking a couple years to do the research, to really make this uh, a solution for people and be able to give them tangibles. But during that process, um, when I first started my business, I focused um, a lot on downsizing and helping people downsize and um, purging their spaces sustainably and reorganizing and doing all these wonderful things. And the reason that I I focused on that is because I went through that journey and it really freed my soul. And I really enjoyed that process. And so helping people do the same, there are a lot of principles that you can attach into downsizing, and I'm air quoting this, downsizing your life. And so one of the things that I think we all can attest to is that sometimes we don't live the best way for ourselves. So if you picture yourself growing up in a house and you're with your you're growing up with parents, you move out when you're 18. You have 18 years of building someone else's systems and habits. Yeah. Where your dad put his keys, you probably put your keys there. Where your dad parked the car, what side your dad slept on or your mom, where their where their pot in the kitchen is probably where you're going to put yours. But they developed that based on who they were, maybe who their parents were, maybe they didn't assess their systems and habits because as we know boomers didn't necessarily do a lot of challenging the status quo. No, they didn't. <laughs> but we do. And so this is what I talk about with people, where you're, you've developed all these standards, these habits, and this sense of success and consumption. And my parents had a big house and two cars. 
in the 80s because they could afford that at $110,000 where that's what I think I need and that's how I see my life. But we can't afford that now, so you have to think differently. So when it comes down to understanding where our desire is to downsize and why we measure success so differently, it's because we think we need things and that's gonna give us hope and happiness. Well, that's a complete Not facade. Yeah. So when you look at um, being overwhelmed, so for example, this is, I'll, I'll go into super quickly an example that I give. It's called spatial overwhelm. Spatial overwhelm is something that everybody suffers from. Your space is always cluttered or it's dirty in some manner. There's a, a you know, one counter that's always got the mail on it. And, and you know, everyone is probably in their car. They're nodding to this. <laughs> <laughs> That's, 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 those are your dumping grounds. Those are your visible spaces, and they're cluttered. The reason your visible spaces are cluttered is because your invisible spaces are also cluttered and full. You have no room to put anything. So this, this happens, and you're become, you become spatially overwhelmed. You become overwhelmed if anyone who's listening to this has children. Can you have a, a son? Uh, many, nope. Yeah, okay. and so <laughs> you're just you're dealing with that. Um, you have uh, this where children become really, really overwhelmed or you become overwhelmed with their toys. Well, if you're overwhelmed, they're overwhelmed. And we don't, as parents, really ever think about this. And so decluttering your children's spaces is really important. But the point I'm trying to make is that this also comes into the play when we talk about something um, which is called decision fatigue. So decision fatigue is a really cool term because um, I can paint you another picture. So when you wake up in the morning, what's the first thing you do? You go to the bathroom. Your bathroom's probably a mess from the night before. You're already starting your day off in a messy area. Then you go to your bedroom. And a lot of people, male or female or otherwise, will probably attest to this, that you have so many clothes but nothing to wear. Okay, then you go to your kitchen. You have so much food but nothing to eat. That's decision fatigue. That's because we're not making decisions that really are intentionally for us. That also includes your home and your lifestyle. So you have to s slow down and you have to reassess and you have to see what's really giving you happiness. And through COVID, that really changed for a lot of people. Amplified. Because your shoes are not gonna feed your family. Your collection of handbags isn't gonna pay your mortgage. Your, your Audi and your Tesla and your XYZ, that's not gonna help your kids go to college now. When the world shut down, people started reassessing. So that is my food for thought. No, it's, it's actually very good food for thought. It my makes mind a lot is of sense. My mind is going so many different directions right now. <laughs> we'll I, got decision, I got decision fatigue. But we're in construction. So like, I, I, I have a nephew. So when he came up to me and he asked me to build him a Lego table because all of his pieces were everywhere and you went into his room and he had the Lego pieces everywhere. And then he showed me a picture of something that was on the market at Toys R Us or whatever. And I said to myself, that makes no sense. So then I came up with a version of a table where I literally built a trough around the perimeter of the table. And so he could put all the pieces in the trough and then grab it and put it in there. No pieces on the floor now. And everything's contained. And it's at this table. It was just organization. So it, it's right. He can come in there with a clear, creative mind now and build whatever he wanted to build. It's true. And as adults, we continue doing that. And we don't stop doing that because we're rat racing everything. Yeah. And we're trying to catch up, keep up with the Joneses and everything like that. And we don't need to do that. Tradespeople are my favorite. So <laughs> creative, so creative. And just, if you want to ever find a high functioning adult to, to do anything for you, find a tradesperson. They'll figure it out. They will. I, I, just as we, I wanted to bring up one little note, I'm from the Azores, my family's from the Azores. So whenever I go, I always stay with family there. And it's always funny, it's ironic that whenever I do stay with family there, 
I go and I visit them and they bring me to the room that I'm going to be staying at or whatever. And their first thought is, well, it's not, it's not a very big room, but it's okay. And I look at them with this odd look in my head because I look out the window and there's nature and there's ocean and there's, <laughs> this room is majestic to me. It doesn't have to be any bigger. That's a North American mentality to have a bigger room where it's a massive bedroom yeah. and all this space. I go, no, you don't need all this stuff. You don't. So it's interesting. The irony is I just got back from Portugal. And oh, did you I really? stayed in a tiny house in Portugal. Because they're all tiny. And it was so comfortable. I love it. I love it. Yeah. Okay, so we got to wrap this up. We have the 12 questions of construction to ask you guys. But I just want to remind everybody again, the Tiny Home Show is happening August 4th to 7th. Uh, Ancaster Fairgrounds and the municipality. Wait, don't forget because you're going to have a lot of city officials there. Is on the Thursday. 12 plus different models to check out. 30 plus exhibitors. Guest speaking, including Ken and so many other people. What other people are going to have guests guest speaking there? Wow, we have uh, Landscape coming to guest speak on the Thursday, and uh, they'll be speaking to a lot of the laneway housing projects in Toronto, which is really exciting. Uh, I know a lot of people are really interested in what's going on down there with that. We have, um, oh my goodness, we have Little Creek Homes is talking about Ontario Building Code and how to overbuild a tiny home. We have uh, myself will be guest speaking on the Thursday to, uh, to speak to the affordable housing framework and I'll be announcing which county in Ontario is the first to adopt the te temporary secondary dwelling unit bylaw and actually have a policy for it, which is exciting. Mm, drawing a blank. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know that when I spoke with Christy briefly, you guys were going to hand out some passes through the show or if you wanted to do that so I can let them know because I'll try to post this tomorrow so then Lisa has a few days to get it started but you guys can figure that out if you want to do that and I can leave it on the notes there. Yeah, fantastic. So yeah. if they go to tinyhome.show and just head to the speakers series then you'll see everyone who we have speaking. Most of our speakers are also exhibiting so we have um, a really, really wide range uh, land pro plan which is a land planning development company. We have MW Draft and Design who is a design company from uh, around the Norfolk County, Haldeman County kind of region. But a lot of the exhibitors, Instead Homes, who is out at Prince Edward County, is one that I really want people to come see because they do integrated homesteads and off-grid systems. And they do, they really do a systems first. They're there all thing. four days? Or they're there all four days. Their booth is beside mine. Nice. And um, they're, they'll be speaking specifically their permaculturists as well so if there is anyone as you were saying you know when you're talking about landscaping when you're talking about living integratedly into a homestead they do it all and so they're going to be exciting for people who are interested in their services but also builders and industry professionals who are interested in doing things a little more sustainably as well um, but yeah we have a lot of we have container homes tiny homes geodomes We've got an Airstream trailer photo booth, which is super exciting. Oh, wow. We have, wow. this is actually one of my favorite things, and I know I'm sitting with two men right now, but we have an all-female framing company called Girls Can Frame, and they're doing I've a live... I've been in touch with them. They're going to come on the show soon. Amazing. Yes, I totally know who they are. Yes. Brittany is fantastic. Yes. She's just, just such a pleasure to talk to. So she They're rock is stars. They know what they're doing. Rock stars. Yeah. So they're doing a tiny home frame build live build all weekend. Oh, really? Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, it's, it's going to be such a cool show. Red Shed is coming from Brantford. We need more girls in the trades. Absolutely. Yes, we do. And we are an all-female planning team maria and christy from tiny homes in canada so we're doing very, this for the very first time doing this for the very first time and you guys are actually doing a really really good job of it too. <laughs> thank you i appreciate that <laughs> that's good so everyone okay check it out and go so let me ask you guys the 12 questions i don't know if you, you guys aren't familiar with this huh no. these 12 no. questions now don't worry no, I have no there's idea. no there's no right or wrong okay so i'll start with you ken what is your favorite construction word uh my favorite word would be uh square footage square feet fitting 
oh my gosh, we're going to be. Yeah. <laughs> Small space design. Least favorite construction word. Least favorite uh, variance. I can see that. Variance. <laughs> <laughs> what turns you on in construction, guys? Uh, lately, it's been universal design. Mm. Oh, good one. Accessibility stuff. Mm -hmm. yeah. Inclusive policy. What turns you off in construction? Neighbors. <laughs> Naysayers. Yeah. We haven't been cursing, but what is your favorite curse word or phrase to use? You guys don't have to curse if you don't want to. Yeah, I, uh, I would say uh, just classic F word. Yeah. <laughs> it makes a point, so same. What's your favorite vehicle in the entire world? Could be anything. Ford F-150. Your Ford guy. My favorite Ford. Is, my favorite Ford. I don't like Fords. I'm sorry. I'm a Dodge gal. <clears throat> I know. We're, them's fighting words. You're number three of the three. You know that, right? Yeah. I am number three of the three. I'm, I'm sorry. 1968 Mustang convertible. Mm. White interior, cherry red, because my grandfather built one. Wow. Good choice. 1969. I'm sorry. His favorite year was the 68. It's I love the white interior. It's a classy gal. Yes, it is. What's your least favorite vehicle in the entire world? Ford F-150 because it's a gas guzzler. <laughs> Dodge Ram. <laughs> Terrible. No I idea know why somebody would buy one. Honestly, it's rusting. It's, it's bad. I'm waiting for the, for the Tesla truck. I've got my sights set on it. The Cybertruck? Yeah, seven years from now. I've spoken negatively about that truck on this show several times i don't think it's going to hold up to any other truck i agree i'm in a real construction environment yeah right we're that's looking at buying a sprinter van so like the new ford f-150 lightning like the all-electric truck like that's that's you, a real you guys let me know yeah. how that's gonna do in the dead of winter at four o'clock in the morning loading stuff up and i forgot to charge it kind of mentality let's see what happens there I will keep our gas cars forever, though, because when the apocalypse happens, I'm getting out of there with my fuel. <laughs> and your Dodge. <laughs> what construction sound or noise do you guys love? I like the smell of, like, sawdust, you know, like, good skill saw, just whatever. Not can't make burnt noise. sawdust, though. What, sorry, what was that? Burnt. Burnt? Like the uh, blade no. is binding? No, uh, well, I do like the smell of nice burning wood. Yeah, it's uh, different, though, but cutting different. something no, and no, binding. No, smell just nice, fresh sawdust. Just, yeah. Yes, I agree completely with that. Our shop always smells like sawdust. I and love it's it. just so good. What construction sound or noise do you guys hate? Uh, like the backup beeper, like beep. Oh, yeah. Like when you're getting, getting a de uh, delivery. Yeah. Probably annoying. the nail gun. We have plenty of carpenters on the site who love that sound, by the way. Uh, what profession, guys, other than your own, would you like to attempt one day? I think I'd like to be a veterinarian. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I love yeah. animals more than people. Yeah. I live on a hobby farm <laughs> with 34 farm animals. Really? And I can't do anything as far as they're other than feeding them. But I would love to be able to, you know. You have a range of everything? Yeah, we have uh, alpacas and a horse and a pony and potbelly pigs and wow. goats and a rooster. And that's awesome. Ken is now yeah. my new best friend. I yeah. know, that's awesome. Yeah. But I would love to be able to, you know, fix their broken leg or something like that. Mm. You know. I'm very similar vein. In a previous life, I was a wedding and event planner, coordinator. And then in a life before that, I was going and trying to get into animal rehabilitation. So I would own probably my own animal rehabilitation sanctuary 
slash farm, but also make it an eco You gotta come visit the farm. I want to. Yeah. I would love to do an ecotourist uh, property as well to show people how to live sustainably. That's nice. So it's kind of on the same vein. It is. What profession, guys, would you not like to do ever? I think uh, like a parking bylaw attendant, like parking bylaw officer who who gives rent to cops. Yeah, who gives tickets for parking infractions. I know. They just don't seem pleasant. <laughs> no, never. <laughs> like, I don't get it. I would not want to do anything with heights or small spaces. So anyone who has to f- go into tunnels or fix caves. So you hate small spaces, yet you're in small space design. <laughs> oh, well, like... You're talking about, like, With a hundred feet of, of, of soil above me. Yes, oh, no, yes. thank you. Like Got it. And or the, oil rig person. Yeah, you're stuck Water. there, huh? Last question. If heaven exists, guys, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Well done, good and faithful servant. Oh, he had that in his back. <laughs> Sadie's out back. Go see her. <laughs> Sadie's my, my dog. Yeah. My, old, my old dog. How old was she? She, she passed away uh, a few months ago. She was 14. I lost mine a few years ago, six months apart. Hardest thing you'll ever do. 14 and a half and 15. Also, what's up? Margaritas are ready would be a solid greeting as well. I hear he makes the best ones. Probably. (laughs) (laughs) Ken, thank you very much. Bianca, thank you very much. Everybody, check it out. LegalSecondSweets.com. Ken, B-E-K-E-N-D-A-M at gmail.com. And it's also the same name for his social. Bianca, you've got the Giving Tree and Tiny... Uh, home show and then it's also tinyhome.show and thegivingtreefamily.com and at thegivingtree.tinyhome and the show everybody again august 4th to 7 uh tiny home show ancaster fairgrounds and uh there's gonna be a lot going on so much going on it's like it's been a pleasure speaking to you and seeing the home and checking out everything and i think we've covered quite a bit here we yeah, have. thanks for uh, for having us. Oh, it's nice. amazing. Thank you so much. I think much. you're going to get a lot of inquiries because I, I, from all the trades that I've spoken to, they want to get into these spaces. They want to get into tiny homes, accessible living, wellness living, all kinds of stuff like that. We we love building. We love spending other people's money, but we also love challenges. And love that's it. what this is, right? Mm-hmm. Thanks. We're out of here, I think. We're done. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs>